Tonight is January 31st, 2018, and the title of today's message is Magnify. Subtitle, The Exponent. We're going to start out our journey tonight by recapping that phenomenal word that came Sunday. It was called Initiate. It's the I in our Talmudim series. And our wondrous nap crew delivered that for us. It stirred my soul to action. What it did is it reminded us of the path that is a bloody process and brought us up to the place where we can be initiated into the call of God and where we are meant to serve and function. You guys remember that? Yes. Were you there on Sunday? Yes. Say it's a bloody process. It's a bloody process. <laughs> that was a good word. You would do well to spend some time listening to it, going back over it, and implying it to your life because the teaching in it is life. One of the key texts of Initiate was John 15, 15. Let's turn there together. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. See, what we're aiming for is listed in the scripture. The disciples had come to a place where they were friends or peers with their rabbi. They were affirmed in the completion of their training and sent to go produce fruit that would last. They were initiated into their call and function. Whether you're a five-fold ministry in this room or a pillar, you need to be initiated into your call and your function and be fully discipled. See, one of the things that we've been drilling home throughout this whole process and that the pastors have long before us is that there is one standard. And throughout the Bible, discipleship is what is called for. So whether you believe that you're called to Iraq, you're called to Kenya, or you're called to your local body right here, you are called to be initiated. To be initiated is the foundation and the platform of where we will be going tonight. I would suggest that you keep a finger in your Bible, that you have your notes ready. We've got a lot of ground to cover. But I've made up my mind that by the end of the tonight, we're not going to leave anybody in the middle. Say, nobody in the middle. Nobody. Let's turn to tonight's subject matter. Let's go to John 14, 12. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may bring glory to the Father. See, tonight's word is magnify. Our subject matter, it's about the glory of our God. It's about that continuing nature of discipleship and the magnification of what has already been done. I had the pleasure of studying the other day with Peyton for a few minutes and he shared some insightful things with me. In John 14, you see that last section where it says, so the Son may bring glory to the Father? The word glory here is Strong's number 1392 in the New Testament. It's glory here. An equally valid translation is magnify. So the concept here is that we are enhancing something that is already existent. Say already existent. What we're going after tonight is the application of the things that have already been taught and taking it further. So what are we going to do? We're going to magnify. 
Say we're going to magnify tonight. See, I, I'm not going to settle this evening for dry, for boring. It's a Wednesday night. You could be tired. I'm tired. But I want the glory or the magnification of my king tonight. Do you want that? Yes. Amen. So John 14 is going to be the basis for much of what we cover here. So, Acts 1 students, are you in the room? Anybody here? Got a hand up. So the words of Christ here, are they fairly push up? Is it a ramaz? Is it a sowed when he says, if you have faith in me, you will do what I do? Or is it a pashat? It's a pashat. So in this pashat statement, Jesus challenges us and states that anyone who has faith in me, he will be doing what I am doing. See, this is going to be the tenor of tonight where we are going to take on the character of Christ and take it further to even greater things. See, this is a room full of people that I know and that I love. Some of you are sons of Christ on your way to a celestial city right now. You're journeying towards the kingdom of God, fighting to get there, being discipled. Some of you are the sons of the devil on your way to scorching hellfires, sitting in this room right now. Our money-back guarantee to you tonight for the sermon that you paid nothing for is that we will make you mad, glad, or sad, but none of you are going to be bored. Not one of you will be allowed to be left in the middle tonight. We are going somewhere. Amen. Say, we're going somewhere. We're going to do anything tonight but sit still. Amen. So as we think about magnify and what that means, I want to start from the beginning with you about the original call of God and where He is taking us. Open your Bibles and turn to Genesis. You in Genesis? What's Genesis 1, 6 say? And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. From the very beginning, we have a creation story. And God divides the world up. And he says, it is good when I made this. It is good when I made this. And then he makes the sky and he says, it was so. See, there is a larger backstory to our everyday life. There is a problem on the earth that he is using us to fix. And the sky is the area that is filled with principalities, is filled with angelic powers that are defecting. It is that expanse that is between us and God. God called the expanse between you and him so. He didn't say it was good. He just said it is. Anybody in the room ever said to somebody, all right, let's just get it on. We're just going to do it. What that means is that you are done equivocating and you're ready for engagement. In the very beginning of the law, he says, this is our battleground and it is so. This is not good, but we are going to fix it. Do you want to fix it tonight? Yes. From Genesis 1, scan down and go to verse 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Say, subdue it. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, we have a, a battleground that is listed here and then a challenge to us that is placed that says, you go subdue this earth. You go begin to put it under submission. Tonight we are going to put sin under submission. It's going to be beneath our feet. We're going to crush him. God charged us with repairing the world. See, but man has often been finding out that we are inadequate to fix our own problems. 
that we don't quite have what it takes to deal with our own sin. Is anybody in the room that can honestly say that you found out at some point that you did not have mastery over your own sin? See, that was the place at which you got born again if you did. Because the prayer that says, I have always been a good guy and now I'm just adding Christ to my life is not actual salvation. Actual salvation is when you realize something in you must be subdued. As we continue in the law, there's just a couple more stops that we're going to make that help give us an idea of what God is doing in our lives right now. It's funny how a book that is amongst the most ancient texts in the world that is attested to in so many different ways can apply to you sitting here right now. In Deuteronomy 11, 19 through 21, there's a battle plan that is coming out. He told them to teach their children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. This is that law. When you lie down and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. So there's a promise here along with that charge. He says, when you impress upon you and your children, when you talk about it when you walk along the road, that law that I gave you, I'm going to give you dominance over the land. Say dominance with me. I want to be dominant. See, he charged us with subduing something that is resisting. And he makes a promise in Deuteronomy that if you contemplate my word, if you invest into the next generation, you store it up, you are discipled by who I am, what my character is, I will make you dominant in the land. Satan, the Lord is going to make you dominant in here tonight. Jorge, the Lord will make you dominant in here tonight. Frank, the Lord will make you dominant and cause you to subdue the things that are trying to tear into our call. See, we're at war. From the very beginning of the Bible, there is a conflict that is happening, and there was some kind of supernatural empowerment that was required for Keith to succeed, something that was needed so that he produced generations of faithful men. The first step is we're going to impress this teaching upon us and our children. Because there is a promise already laid out long before we were born that he would give you victory when you did that. Let's keep moving. So in Genesis, we find out that there's a conflict. We're charged with fixing it. And God already begins to show us that he's going to help us succeed in it. There's another promise that's made in Deuteronomy that is too good to pass up. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. In it, it says that the things that have been revealed to us will belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all of the words of this law. See, it's always relating back to the commands of God. When you reveal something, you find out something that God laid up in store for you to receive. It is meant to be a promise for the next generation. Say, spiritual sons with me. Natural sons. We're going to be fruitful in this house. God has made a promise that if we take this seriously... It will belong to us and our children forever. See, when you walked in here, there was something already set before you that someone else fought for, that they mined, that they struggled with and developed a teaching that is intended for you as a spiritual son. What we're going to do tonight is take those spiritual teachings and multiply them. We're going to magnify them. We're going to make them greater. In Exodus 3, 6, God declares that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, from the very beginning, he's a generational God. 
His promises are always relating to generations and His commands. They're always relating to a revelation that grows. See, there was one kind of revelation that was given to Abraham, but it grew in the life of Isaac, and it grew exponentially in the life of Jacob. We have a man who struggled to have one son, Isaac who had two, and then Jacob who has 12. Somebody say that's magnified. Somebody say that's revelation. Say, I want magnified revelation tonight. Do you? Yes. The patriarchs really set up the standard for what our lives must look like. We're going to look at the process of discipleship some tonight. Some of these we've already gone over and we're going to look at in a new light. Some I'm picked just because I like them. But I imagine that the word will have an impact on you as we go through it. Let's go to Acts 4.13 together. Say there when you're there. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Has anybody in the room been to prison with me? How many times have you heard this passage? (laughs) See, the gospel declares that the apostles, the men who spread those commands all over the world, were unschooled and ordinary men. That's an astonishing thing. To think about the fact that we're not speaking about the highly educated. We're not speaking about the CEOs of the world. We're not speaking about the presidents or the kings of the world. We're speaking about men who are unschooled and ordinary. But what does it say? They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, that is the solution to everything in your life. The more of Jesus that you can get inside of you, the more you will look like Him. The more problems that you have around you, the more you need to go back to getting Jesus inside of you. Because when we take on those commands, it belongs to us and our children forever. I want to be like those disciples. So in the book of Acts, we see how the disciples walked out the teaching that they had. And something of what they had received astonished the world around them. See, it didn't just sit stagnant. It began to grow. Let's look at Elijah and Elisha. Let's go to 2 Kings 2.9. Chris is there. Where are the rest of you? When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Has anybody ever asked you a question and you responded with a little more than they were expecting? See, John was my youth pastor and he was a good man to me. He sacrificed to invest in my life. More than one time I went out to eat with him and he said, Yeah, I get whatever you want, man. And then I ordered something that nobody expected for there to be quite such an expense. You know, it was like, hey, I'm paying. Like, come on, can't you at least be a little frugal here? Elisha's request that you're about to read is not a frugal one. You can be frugal in your budget. You can be frugal with your meals and your finances. But we are not being frugal tonight. Somebody say lavish with me. Lavish. See, we're not doing frugal anymore. We're going to magnified. He said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. See, there is an aspect of the promises of God that are conditional that we forget about. You see, Elijah realized how difficult what he was asking was. To receive a double portion of everything that had happened in that man's life. And Elijah is one of the most famous prophets that has ever lived. 
And yet, something in the young man knew that if he took what his spiritual father was giving him, God would multiply it. You see, Elijah didn't leave his side. He was working, working and working to dissuade him. He said, stay here, stay here. I got to go on. Look, I don't know when the Lord's going to take me. You need to move on with your life. And he said, no, I'm going to be with you. I'm going where you are. And he sees his father taken up in chariots of fire. What this is, is Jacob wrestling with God, saying, bless me. What this is, is Peter saying, I will not leave the sight of Christ. Where else would I go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You see, this is Ruth saying, I will not leave you, Naomi. See, the end result of us struggling for discipleship and clinging to our spiritual fathers is a double portion. Because when you have that double portion, it's what God gave you in Deuteronomy 29, 29 and passed on to the next generation. You see, the reason the world is always working to dissuade Elijah from clinging to his spiritual father is because the devil knows what happens when sons grow up righteous. See, I'm a pastor's kid. I don't know very many pastor's kids who turned out very well. That's for a reason. That's because they live in an environment where they see hypocrisy and the enemy is constantly working on them to see if he can disrupt the generations. See, think about your children. Think about your spiritual sons. Think about the people that God has called you to invest in in your workplace. He is always working to slip in and see if he can pry them away from the truth. See, he is a liar. He is coming to steal, kill, and destroy your sons. Steal, kill, and destroy your daughters. Steal, kill, and destroy the fruit that your life could produce for the king. We've got to hold on. We've got to cling to our spiritual fathers. Cling to that teaching. Many of you have not actually attached yet. We've gone through these topics. Some of you are damned sitting here right now unless you repent and run towards the Father. See, discipleship is not something that is just for the elite. It's for those who want to inherit a blessed promise. Do you want a promise? Yes. Discipleship is for you then. You hear me? No one in this room is discipleship excluded from. If he brought you here, if he allowed for you to end up here, it's because God has a message for you. Discipleship is being in the kingdom. Pressing into it and clinging for that promise is what it means to be a son heading towards the celestial city. It is a promise that is in the distance and you must fight for. But God will bless and magnify when you go after it. Elijah and Elisha are some of our favorite examples of a disciple being magnified. But I assure you there's some others. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 11, verse 22. I'll tell you a little bit about a priestly warrior. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kazbil who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. See, Benaiah was a man who was born to a priest. And from all accounts and what we see in the scripture, there's no fault that's found in that priest. He seems to be a servant of David and that his family had followed after what God was doing in Israel, even when it was tumultuous. But his son not only was a priest, but he was a man who could stand and fight for the kingdom of God on earth. And I mean that in a quite literal sense. He was known for striking down enemies that other people were scared of. Benaiah is a lion killer. 
What we are working to raise up inside of the Stevens family are priestly sons who know how to fight for the kingdom. Our newest son's name is Beniah. Around the same time that I was born, there was a prophecy out of Genesis 49 that our, the Stevens family was like lions in that God had placed a staff in their hands. This has left Benaiah's mother and I a little concerned. See, if we're supposed to be a family that's made up of lions, we've got a new little one that is a lion killer in the house. You see, when you're wanting to raise righteous sons and leaders, it's not easy, JJ. You're not picking sons that are docile. You're not trying to let them veg out on video games. You're trying to raise up men and women who will stand in their generation against the tide. Where are they going to see it first? See, we're going to have to magnify the things that we already see in the Bible and raise up some lion killers. Benaiah was a priestly warrior. There are other priestly warriors, prophet-like warriors in the Word. Moses and Joshua were extraordinary men. We're not going to turn there tonight, but in Deuteronomy 34, 9 through 12, you hear about their relationship. We've gone over Joshua many times in this series, but this should call to mind some of those aspects. He says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet had arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all of his officials, and to his whole land, for no one had ever seen the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You know the story of Joshua. He's a disciple who got to watch his father's mistakes, successes, and take it further. He brought the people into the promised land. And Joshua, writing the end of Deuteronomy, because Moses is dead, says there's no one like him. See, there was intended to be a bond that was unbreakable between these generations. See, we live in a world where everybody's got daddy issues. Everybody's got issues from when they were a kid, and somebody didn't treat them right. God bless you. You're growing up now. It's time to magnify the right things in your generation. See, we can't sit and bemoan the previous ones when God is placing before us something that if you will grab hold of, like Jacob and wrestle for, God will bless you with it and magnify it. Amen. Moses and Joshua are an extraordinary example. There's one more that I want to take the time to run through with you. It's one of my favorites as well. Has anybody read in the Psalms about David speaking about a temple? Anybody notice that? Brandon, have you noticed that? That in Psalms he speaks about a temple? Are there any Bible scholars in the room who have noticed that there is not a temple when David says this on earth? We're going to go to a passage in Chronicles together. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11. You there? Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple. It's buildings, it's storerooms, it's upper parts, it's inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms. See, this is an example of one generation 
handing something to the next. David received plans from God and he gave them to Solomon. David ruled Israel, but what did Solomon do with it? He made it bigger. He put a temple on the earth that his father had only dreamed about. See, but there's a piece to this story that we've been missing. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I can guarantee you nobody in this room knows what it is. When you read, the Spirit put it in his mind. Do you charismatics? Think of he's in worship and something was downloaded in a moment. See, that's what I think of when I hear it. That the Spirit of God placed it on his mind, man. I want that. I want God just to drop it in me. Would you put that slide on the screen for us? This is a translation by A.J. Rosenberg. And the pattern of all that he had put, he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and all its chambers round about, of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the hallowed things. See, this is a translation by a Jewish author. Now, if you take a few minutes and you want to look on PC Study Bible or on Blue Letter Bible or any other application that has multiple translations, you're going to find out that NIV is the only one that I could find that says the Spirit put it in his mind. Now, why is that? Why is one in 15 translations saying that the Spirit put it in his mind? See, the NIV has a particular bent to trying to help us understand things and putting it in a contextual way as opposed to just literal. See, we appreciate that. That's why I'm reading out of a 1984 NIV right now. But if you look at an NA27 at the words that are in the text, in his mind does not appear. It's not in the text. It's an added word that was put to help with understanding. What this does is it predisposes you to the idea that this came like magic. Say like magic with me. Like magic. We're doing magnified tonight, not magic. Amen. So the sages say, in this case, Rashi, that there was something more at work here. It says that they were engaged in the building of the world, that that refers to the temple. And it lists a couple references. Why don't we check out some other passages about David's discipleship together? Let's look at 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. When David had fled, he made his escape. He went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesy, keep in mind the kind of company that David was with. Samuel was standing there as their leader. The Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they too prophesied. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Sekshuk. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? See, in this passage, it's just a couple of verses. And I love the book of Samuel. I've read over it many, many, many times and never paid much attention to these couple of verses. See, when he flees from Saul, we think of him immediately going to Jonathan 
And at Jonathan, they have their covenant. And uh, we talk about the kind of brotherly unity that has formed the relationships that make the one association. What we forget is that David is in the company of the prophets. When he is in trouble, he flees to those who have the Spirit of God inside of them. He goes back to his spiritual father. And it seems that he spent a good bit more time here than we realize. Sometimes when things happen in the Bible, we're reading about major events. Say major events. See, when I come home from work, I give major events of what happened to my wife. I don't give a second-by-second recount. The Bible lists major events. Sometimes the aspects of discipleship that are most important to your life are not major events. See, it's the time in between the extraordinary events when you're with your rabbi, when you're learning the way that they live. We heard a little bit about this in Louisiana last night. Baj, Nick, and I had an opportunity to dash down to Louisiana. And they were speaking on lavish and model. You see, just because we are teaching this does not mean that we are not hungry and desiring for God to attach it to our lives. When we're speaking up here, it says men who are learning to take in the things that are being taught and produce more. So during this day-to-day events, something happens with David. He begins to put together some plans with his rabbi. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chronicles 9.22. Everybody there? All together. Those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds numbered 212. They were registered by genealogy in their villages. The gatekeepers had been assigned to their positions of trust by David and Samuel the seer. See, again, it's another miscellaneous passage that we read over. Who assigned them their trust? David and Samuel. You see, we think of a born-again experience as the time that Samuel shows up and he anoints you and says, you are called of God. Has anybody in the room had somebody pray for them, stir them, let them know that God has a purpose for them? See, but that is not at all the full story. See, what David did is when he is in trouble, when he is on the run, he is constantly going back to his spiritual father asking him to teach him how to walk. Going back to the Word, going back to the Scripture, going back to the standard of God and applying it. And you know what they're doing together? They are setting up the structure of the temple, the assignments for priestly duties. What part of the service Elder Baj would play? What this did is it produced in David something that could never be accomplished in one man's lifetime. You see, that quote that we had earlier about Rashi, the point that they draw from it is that in about the time span of two or three years, we have a man's life of 20 years being invested into someone. See, what it might take 20 years of experience to learn With someone who is devoted to discipleship, it can be imparted in just a few years. And then what David does with it is he takes it, he develops it, he readies it and he lays up provisions and he gives it to his son Solomon. What Solomon does with it is he takes the very plans that were in the heavens 
and they are built upon the earth. See, this is the third generation. What magnify is, is when it has gone before, beyond you. It's, it's beyond just what's in front of you. And we're investing into the call of God in a way that it starts to grow and grow and grow Amen. until it radically affects the earth. See, this is the essence of magnify, and we see so, so few examples of three generations in the Bible. Who in Acts class from previous classes knows how few generations are in the Bible? Anybody? Who here knows multiple families that are in ministry and have more than three generations? See, I only can count maybe about what's on one hand. Some of you who grew up in Louisiana, who were there in the last 30, 40 years, how many times have we seen family dynasties fall? How many times have we seen the great man of God hit the deck? See, what God had always intended was that we would invest and invest and take that pattern so seriously that we would make our sons greater than we ever were. That we're not trying to build an institution. That we're not trying to build a building. That we are trying to magnify the power of God to the place where they can do something we never could. Amen. See, David bemoans before the Lord that he wants to build him a temple, but he has too much blood on his hands. See, what you cannot accomplish in your lifetime, if you take discipleship seriously and invest it into the people that are around you and you become a discipler yourself, having been initiated into your call, is you will raise up men who will go farther than you ever were able to do it. Who remembers Peyton's word? We had Ecclesiastes 12:11 in there. He was speaking about firmly, directly driven nails that are the teachings of the wise and the student himself becomes that nail. See, when you are firmly embedded, you begin to build a structure that is bigger than you ever could on your own. Magnify is what one man can't accomplish in his life. The third generation buries. See, one man wants to try and lay a foundation. He has ideas and plans about it. The third generation builds it and God anoints it with fire from heaven. Amen. What we want in LCM is not just one generation where it dies in the lifetime of three pastors. What we're going after is a church that is built upon successive generations that are not based on genetic heritage, that are based upon your calling, your function, and men who are ordinary unschooled, rising up to the challenge of God and magnifying what they previously had. When you think about the things that we have accomplished already, we've touched continents all over the world. There are churches that are raised up all over the world and are not a satellite, but are genuine births. What is in store for us if we don't let the devil get in and cut us off? See, if we can make it to the second and third generation of ministries... We're going to see the kingdom of God enveloping the earth like a rock that was cut out in Daniel. Amen. See, what happened between Samuel, David, and Solomon is magnifying its essence. We're going to keep moving. But that particular concept is something that we have to hold on to because the world around us is constantly trying to get us to be selfish, constantly trying to get us to think about our calling, our life, what is right in front of us, and what God is calling you to do is magnify something that is not about you at all. But he blesses it when we do it. So who knows 
Let's talk about some of the parables that are in the New Testament. So we have the talents in Matthew 25. What do you do with the talent? You multiply it. See, it was never enough that we just hold on to what we have. See, some of you in the room are thinking back to the day that you were born again and you know you genuinely had something. Something that we want to elucidate tonight that is part of you figuring out how to get to the left or right and out of the middle that is also known as lukewarm is that to be born again is the very, very, very first step. And if you do not progress in discipleship, you are damned. You see, so this is not just about you learning to speak or act like a certain pastor. It's about you progressing the way of life and being initiated into the fruitfulness that John 15, 15 talked about. You see, he ordained you to change the world. He ordained you to magnify what was already given. In each of the parables in Matthew, multiplication is what is required. Say magnify. Magnify. In the four soils in Matthew 13, they magnified 30, 60, and 100 fold. In the vineyard in Matthew 20, they were expected to magnify the master's return. See, this magnification was what the gospel has always been about from Genesis to the life of Jesus. What did he do with the fig tree in Matthew 21 that did not produce good fruit? See, did it not live? Was it not alive? See, the fig tree was alive at one point in time. It was born. It even had some growth. But when it failed to produce fruit that was magnified beyond what it started with, it was cut off. See, magnify is the end goal of the discipleship teaching. When we start at take in, what we're starting with is the basic, it's the starting line of a race. It's not the end in and of itself. It's, like, it's not hopping in on the boat and it's going to take you where you need to go. It's something that you're stepping into and having to go after. So I'm looking around the room and some of you are somewhere between take in and attach right now. See, You've come into the kingdom. You may have even have come into the church, but you're not fully attached to what God has called you to. And what we are aiming at is becoming initiated, where we are ordained, where we are, have the culmination of what we have been working for comes into play so that we can magnify it. See, the end goal of Daniel's life, of Sidney's life, of Miss Pat's life, of Matthew, Pastor Matthew Piro's life, is that we would magnify the inheritance that was given to us. Let's go back to John 14. Everybody there? I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. What does it mean to see greater things? Do you remember a message I want to call, I want to win? See, we spoke about this the last time that we went through it. What it meant to see greater things. That is quite the question when you take that literally. When we're speaking about Jesus saying, I want you to do greater things. The one who believes in me, who has faith in me, it's going to produce something greater than the life of Christ in you. 
See, that's an astounding promise to make to such flawed human beings. See, but the call of discipleship has always been betting everything. It's always been putting all eggs in one basket, putting all of your investment into one person. At this point, you ought to consider that not just Christ, but the pastors and the men in the church who are leading in their way of life have invested everything in you. You see, for Magnify to work, it's not just dependent upon one person. You're trusting, praying, expecting that the promise of God and their desire to fulfill it will carry through generations. See, there's an overwhelming crushing weight knowing that something was started long before me and that I have a responsibility to take it all in and produce a minimum of twice as much, if not 30, 60, and 100 fold. It's a whole nother way looking at two sons that you know you have to give them something that you haven't even quite mastered yet, but it must replicate. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 8, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, facing though, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? See, what happened in Elijah in Elijah's life is just the beginning. What has been given to us is something that is going to be even greater. What has been invested in us is the weight of the calling of God. Paul even goes so far as to say to the Corinthian church that my letter of recommendation is not written on tablets of stone. I don't have a doctorate up somewhere that says that I'm an apostle. It's engraved on your hearts. So let's think about what it's going to take for us to produce even greater things. Is that fair enough? Yes. Do you want to magnify? Yes. Let's take a look at Moses and Jesus for a moment. So Moses and Jesus both did extraordinary things. But we're going to run through what their lives looked like for a moment. So in John 2, water was turned to wine. Jesus did that. In Exodus 7, the Nile was turned to blood. Moses did that. In Matthew 14, loaves and fishes were reproduced in the life of Jesus. In Exodus 14... Manna from heaven was rained down for an entire nation. In John 21, there was a miraculous catch of fish. In Exodus 17, there was water for an entire nation. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. In Numbers 16, Korah was swallowed. In Luke 4, it walks, Jesus walks through a crowd and is unharmed. In Joshua 10, the very stellar realm freezes. In Luke 7, a man is raised from the dead. In 2 Kings 13, Elijah's bones resurrect someone. See, to resurrect someone is one thing. And it's an extraordinary event that we're not trying to downplay. But resurrecting someone while you're living, laying on hands, you've got the elders on your left and right, it's really different than being a dead guy with bones, but the Spirit of God was in you so much that contact with it still raises people from the dead. In John 11, Caiva speaks, and in Numbers 22, a donkey spoke. 
The parallel that was drawn there was a man who is w leaving a wicked life prophesied something accurately. Haven't we all seen that on occasion? Yeah. And in the book of Numbers, a donkey's mouth was open and he gave a warning to a wayward prophet. In the New Testament, the blood of the Lamb saved an individual. In the Old Testament, the blood of the Lamb saved an entire nation. See, we've always been aiming at Christ. And we look at the miracles that are in the Older Testament, and they're bigger. There's no way around it. Do you guys remember that? It's not too long ago that you don't remember, I want to win. Come on, it's a flower message. Say, I want to win. When you look at the disparity between the life of Moses, the life of Joshua, the life of Elijah, and that of the New Testament, there is some kind of disconnect here that we have to wrestle with for a moment. If Christ is the culmination of the law, He is what we were aiming at from the very beginning, wouldn't you expect to see the most enormous things ever done in His ministry? I mean, I would. I would think that if the very Messiah was here, that He's going to come liberate us from the Romans. I would think that He is going to be the glorious King for the world to see. And yet He was crucified on a cross. You see, what it means to magnify is when you are intentionally taking the lesser position of sacrifice and nailing yourself on a cross so that your disciples and the people around you might see what is greater. See, the Christ didn't come so that He would be great. He came to serve to give you an opportunity to grow and be magnified. What we are going for as a church is a heart that will lay down everything to see someone else succeed. It's what it means to be life-changing ministries. It's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If Jesus was the Son of God, He had the power to do anything that He wished, but He chose to come and be a servant to you. What does this mean for us if we're going to do greater things than we're seeing in the life of Christ and we're called to the same kind of faith that we see in the Older Testament? Let's go to Psalm 31.15 for a moment. You all there? My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. See, we teach in this church that when we preach, it must be out of your personal wrestling with the Word. You're not allowed to take somebody else's sermon and decide that it sounds good and you're going to preach it so that you look pretty. This is something that revived my soul because I was in a position where I was not full of life. I was asking God to revive me. I'm not sure what to do. I feel like I've gotten my head knocked off and I'm a little dizzy. David here in this psalm, he lists his trials. He lists the things that are going on in his life. And then there's like a moment of clarity when the Spirit of God began to stir in the man's mind. And he said, you know, but my times, plural, are in your hands. You're going to deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. And the tenor of the psalm begins to change. See, when we think of those specific times in your life that all hell is broken loose, where the devil is unleashing his opposition against you, and you're warring for the kingdom, God has spoken in advance saying that those times are in my hands. What that did is it began to revive some courage inside of my soul. 
But when we're thinking about the times that we live in and seeing greater miracles, I want you to consider a few things that are going on in our daily life. Islam is on the rise. Immorality is on the rampage. The constitution of the church has been ravaged beyond repair. We are living in a modern-day book of judges. Consider the book of Revelation. Whose descendants will face the beast? There is a growing endurance that is going to be necessary. All of the Turkey team is watching a Syrian map right now. We're watching about five different nations fight over a small patch of land with some U.S. troops in the middle of it. See, we have nations rising up against nations. We have people groups deciding that they want to destroy another people group. We have religions that the world has proclaimed is peace that are rising in a militant way looking to dominate the land. We are living in a day that the headlines on the newspaper do not look like a utopia. Who's been in our Monday night Bible studies? Me. I'm on church. What did the world of the chauffeur team look like? The times that are in your hands. You see, God ordained the times that we would live in. He knew when we would live, when we would work, and He ordained it so that we might reach out to Him. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it speaks of men who knew and understood the times. That they knew in advance what they were going to have to do even though they didn't see it. They rallied to the king. These are men of Issachar who came to David when he is outcast, when he is not king of the world yet. We are called to be men who recognize the times that we live in. Rise up and follow to our king who is not proclaimed king of the world to everyone yet, who is not sitting high and above in a visible way. We still see Islam on the rise. We still see the Catholic Church acting like a whore of Babylon. We still see churches around us decide that they are going to water down the gospel. We still see people realize that they're sitting in sin in a church and go home and stay that way every day. See, the world is not perfect yet. In fact, it's actually getting a whole lot worse. So when we think about greater things, what were the circumstances in the Bible that created the greatest miracles? I want to say that it's just a notable point that cannot be missed by the intellectually honest amongst us, that the greater miracles performed were in the Tanakh and usually during warfare. See, our times of greater things may take place in a world much more like the Shofetim than we think. I would like to illustrate the connection between the turmoil of the times and the magnitude of the men in the miraculous events displayed by God. See, men are made in a struggle against the kingdom of the world. We are put here to subdue and multiply. See, our struggle is not with flesh and blood. It's not. Ephesians 6 elucidates this. It says clearly what our struggle is against. It says that it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in, in the heavenly realms. See, but there is no division between the times of Joshua and now. It's one Bible, one God, and one book. See, that we're going to follow wholeheartedly. Joshua's fight was not with flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world. Psalm 82, verse 1, calls them the mighty ones. And yet Joshua did struggle. There was war, there was turmoil, there was moving of nations and peoples. There was the extermination of all... <clears throat> Exterminations of others, all are the biblical backdrop for greater things. It's our time to rise up inside of our times. You see, 
God will intentionally allow the world to get a little bit darker. In Exodus 11, verse 9, it says that he is allowing Pharaoh's heart to be hardened so that his miraculous miracles can be displayed. See, when you think about producing greater things, this is not a point where you become like a Buddhist more spiritually enlightened and you just see greater miracles because you're that much better of a person. It's when you get down in the fight of the kingdom and the world around you is getting more difficult and we are trying to raise up a generation that can stand against the Antichrist. When you're exhausting your life on the mission field, when you're exhausting your finances, helping other people get there, when your life is about discipleship and the cause of the kingdom is when we begin to see miracles that are greater. Now, think about the New Testament church. What kind of life were they living? See, it was not easy. It was not cushy. And yet they saw some extraordinary things that you didn't even see in the life of Christ. Peter's shadow healed people. There's no recorded event of that happening in anybody else. See, the more persecution that you put Christians under, the more opportunity we have to magnify the teaching that has already been given. You see, it's meant to be developed under pressure. Christians are Talmudim. Talmudim are formed in a bloody process. See, there is no middle ground in this. To be in Christ is to be in that bloody process pressing in towards His cross. See, what He's calling us to do as a church is magnify the teachings that have been given all around the world. And what it's going to cost and what it's going to call you to is to climb up on your cross and lay your life down tonight. What it's going to call you to do is examine that Talmudim teaching honestly and decide where you are lacking. See, no one can honestly say that over the last eight weeks, nowhere in that section have you realized has there been something that you've gotten completely perfect. There is not one of those sections that anyone in here can say, I have totally nailed that at all times. And yet, Christ has already said that if you have faith in me, you will do what I do. You will be like Christ as a perfect image and model representation. But then he even goes on to say, you will do even greater things. What that is going to call us to do is to press into that discipleship, press into that pattern so that it might be magnified around the world. Amen. See, when you talk about times of war, turmoil, this is Texas. I've got a gun on me. A lot of you have guns in here. People think doomsday prepper, go get an M16. But really need to be honest here. The times that we're heading towards, your M16 is not going to help you. What we need more of is the Spirit. We need more discipleship. We need more of the Word in our lives. What we need is greater things. See, the day of the fluffy, flamboyant, flaky, fickle, and phony church is coming to an end. Like Peyton said, the spiritual snowflakes among us are not going to make it. We must be magnified into the full call of God. See, the armament of heaven that you need for the spiritual fight, it can only be found in diligent, driven discipleship and a DCD attitude. Amen. See, the world that you're being called to is a greater one than the life of Christ walked in. He clearly states that. And as you read the book of Revelation, we're heading to a place where there is more persecution, there is more trial, and more power at your disposal. Yeah. See... What excuse does that leave us by the end of this? When you realize that somebody laid down their life to bring you discipleship. They laid down their time to sacrifice for you. When they got up on their cross to see you born again, to see you succeed, when they were fighting for your family. What 
What possible excuse do we have to not cling to that? See, but more than that, what it should make you do and it's making me do is climb down on my knees and say, Dear God, magnify my efforts. Lord, I'm going to cling to this like Jacob. Lord, I'm not going to let Elisha go. Lord, I want what you have. Mighty God, please magnify it. Lord, cause it to be fruitful. Jesus, I want you and I want all of you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give you every ounce of what I do have. And I'm asking that you would magnify this flawed human being and do something with it of value. See, if you can't say that you really have come to the place where you realize how wretched you are and how much you need God, you're not capable of being magnified. See, you really need to understand that it's not because you're so special. It's because what you've been given is so great. See, we need to magnify that power and deliver it to the world. We're going to walk through just a couple of areas left, and I want to make sure that we leave time to get into worship. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, it says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it goes on and he says, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, what the Apostle Paul is letting us know here is that when we give ourselves fully, he will cause it to not be in vain. Do you understand? He will make up the difference for you when you give him your all. But if you give him your 80%, your 90%, it's as worthless as menstrual rags like Isaiah says. You see, he is calling you all in tonight. He's calling you all the way into the kingdom of God. He's calling you all the way into discipleship. He's calling your wife all the way into discipleship. He's calling your children all the way into discipleship so that he can magnify it and make it into something wonderful. Psalm 127 says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. What we are doing when we take discipleship seriously is raising up an army of God that will beat back the gates of hell. It's not just I won't be ashamed anymore. It's that they will be victorious there. See, a man with sons, when he shows up somewhere, is not alone. He has strong men around him. A man who shows up with spiritual sons has an army of God with the backing of the Holy Ghost. What we want is to raise up men who are ready to take the gates of hell. In Romans 3, Paul says, What advantage then is there being a Jew? Of what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. So what advantage is there in being a second generation? See, when someone else has sacrificed and bled to learn certain things, to learn how to operate under the power of God, to learn to be dependent upon Him and lay down your own will, your own aspirations. That's something that you get to deliver in a very short time frame that only gets bigger and bigger. See, the Jews built tradition that throughout the New Testament you see being corrected. Man, it gets slammed. 
it's because it was being used in a wrong application. See, we're Protestants, as in not Catholic. I mean, that is the definition of someone who is a Protestant. And we decide that we have no interest in anything that's tradition. And yet, all of you know that we do certain things in this church at certain times that usually around 7 we're going to start. We usually try and wrap up around 9, and that becomes our liturgy. You see, what the kingdom of God is going after is a living, breathing tradition. One where one man can impart a living way of life into another. So that it's not just something that is written on a piece of paper that says, you must do this. A, B, or C is your options in this circumstance. It's, I'm going to teach Nick how to be like me, and Nick will teach his son to be like him. And the knowledge that was gained, that is more than just factual knowledge, but is living, breathing interaction with the Scripture, like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, things that God revealed that were birthed, will be given to Nick's grandson. So what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. What you have the ability to give a disciple is an advantage in much in every way. Share a secret with you. Every one of you in this room, you're a second generation something. So you're here because somebody else went further, longer, and harder than you, and they're pouring into your life. So how have you been advantaged? Much in every way. Let's go magnify that in the lives of others. Because if somebody has done that for you, you have the ability to give that to them in a way that is an exponential growth. See, the third generation here is the exponent in the title. See, we see good things happen between the first generation and the second. But you, sitting in these seats, have the call of God and the power of God right now to make a third generation, to make one that has none of the faults of the first and all of the strengths of both the first and the second. Every time in the Scripture you see three successful generations, something extraordinary happens, like a house for God on earth is built. So what is He placed in your hands? Say, I am the one to magnify. In John 14, he says, Ask anything and I will do it, so that I might bring glory or magnification to my Father. See, the Father and the Son are magnified through what you do in your life. And something has been handed to you. And what footing would you put a third person on if you took all of this in seriously and put it in their lap? You see, we have the ability to be armed with heaven's armory. We don't have to be sitting around playing with toothpicks anymore. You have real weapons in your right and your left hand that are of value, that do damage to the enemy. See, it's time to stop playing around with the world and playing church where we're in and out. You're either all the way in tonight or you're all the way out because magnify isn't a halfway thing. you got to go after it. I promised you that tonight you would be all the way in or all the way out. Joy or... Tara, would you put that back on the screen, that uh, second slide? This is our Talmudim. It is take in, cultivating the call, attach, dedicated to devotion, lavish, traveling together, model, emulating the example, implement, responding to responsibility, direct, succeeding under supervision, initiate, 
designated to disciple, magnify, steadfast in service. It is a monument to a way of life and a bloody door. The gospel is calling your name tonight. We're not going to be allowed to sit in church for three, five, ten years anymore and not be pressing through that. The standard has been raised for us. See, there's a great chasm that's forming in here. It's between those who have had an experience with God at some point in their life, maybe even in this church, been filled with the Spirit, but they're falling off on the wrong side of the chasm because they have not been born as a disciple. They have not been initiated into their call. You see, you can't stay in the womb forever. You've got to be born sometime. Discipleship is meant to make you grow and introduce you into the real world where you are fulfilling your calling. And from there, you never stop magnifying it. As we contemplate some of the things that have been preached over the last eight weeks, we're going to read one final scripture, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table of the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. See, when you want greatness in the kingdom of God, when you want true magnification, it starts in its very essence with you applying the life of Christ and you laying down your life in service to Him. Where you climb on that cross. See, I know that each one of you have something that God has called you to magnify to the rest of the world. But there's something that stands between you and that. And it's the things that are left uncrucified. You must be taken in. You must be attached. You must follow the pattern of discipleship. Where have you fallen short in the last eight weeks of teaching? Where in this do you know God is pricking your heart because you must go after it? There is more at stake than just your life. We're not going to read it, but Romans 8, it tells us that we're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. That the very earth itself is looking for you to stretch out. I don't know how to express the very creation itself, back from the time that it was subjected into conflict and warfare, it was waiting for somebody to come and bring the solution. See, there were some prophecies that came forth at this New Year's Eve, and we are almost out of January. And we can't forget them, because in 30 days you really can. And it said, come and take your place amongst us. What that means is that each of you have a place to take your stand to be initiated and magnify the call of God in and you must take it this year because if you don't 
God will raise up someone who will. You hear me? Men have fallen away from this congregation. They have abandoned the leadership. But I assure you, God will blot out the sky with provision. He will raise up men who will fulfill the call of God. And perhaps like Esther, he's saying tonight to you that it's Ibrahim's chance to stand in his day in the times that God placed him in and do something better than what was given to him. Because God has called Ibrahim to magnify something more than what was taught to him. You must take it on fully to be able to magnify further. Stand to your feet with me.